Welcome to Coffee and Change. I'm Bill Kirst. As a business professional, a U.S. veteran, a lifelong learner, and an active listener, I help others navigate, understand, and adapt to our ever-changing workplace and world. As a third culture kid, I call many places home. Presently, Seattle is where I explore my creativity through the power of words and images. In this podcast, we journey with our guests, gaining knowledge and inspiration from their stories. Hello and welcome back. Thanks for listening. My next guest, John Becker, recently recommended that I read a book titled All Secure by Tom Satterley. I'd like to start off this episode by reading the last paragraph from the epilogue of that book. It begins, we can do this. Our souls and our hearts, as well as our bodies, have blisters on them. We're wounded and exhausted, sometimes beyond human endurance. But just keep moving forward, always forward, until we are all secure. John Becker has spent his life's work making sure that those in uniform, all uniforms, are all secure. Spanning nearly four decades of service to law enforcement and military special operations units around the world, John's commitment and expertise has influenced the innovation and application of tactical equipment for operators from around the world, serving in top law enforcement and military units. After founding Aardvark Tactical when just 17 years old, John has gone on to grow his company into one of the largest providers of tactical equipment in the world while also becoming an attorney with a focus on civil rights and police litigation. John attributes his success and remarkable journey to those who came before him, to those who invested in him, and to those who taught him the importance of compassion, care, and commitment in developing his craft. His craft is saving lives, each and every day. And that craft continues in the lost art of oral tradition, with his podcast called The Debrief. On his show, John and his guests help countless families, communities, protectors, leaders, and warriors with what seems to be a near mission impossible. Healing. True healing begins when we can tell our stories and free ourselves, if only for a moment, from the unyielding grip of trauma and loss because we all have the right to heal. I believe it is a powerfully shared purpose and passion for storytelling, heartbreak, and healing that brought John into my ecosystem on July 12th, 2022. What followed was a series of conversations, what is being born as a kinship for a common end state, that is healing through learning, sharing, and meeting one another in our own uninhibited humanity. Enjoy the conversation and tune in to The Debrief at thedebrief.live to hear more harrowing stories from John and his guests. So this is exactly where, honestly, I'd I'd love to start it. There was a a quote that came to me this morning in the shower. I don't don't know, it just sort of downloaded. Um, And I'll unpack it a little bit as we talk you know, over the course of the next hour or so, but it landed so well with what I hope to get out of today's discussion. And so I wrote it down for myself to kind of put here in front of me. 
And the quote was, if you want to get acquainted with a man, get to know his body of work. If you want to understand a man, get to know his mentors. That's a really interesting quote. And that's what I did, John. Um, yeah, that's I sat down last night and I started going through your body of work and aardvark, which we're going to talk about, and um, non-lethal tactical operations and innovation. And then I found myself sort of yearning towards, well, who were his teachers? Yeah. Who were his mentors? And so I went to episode one of The Debrief, your podcast, and watched episode one and episode two. And this morning I thought, well... We're certainly going to tell your story, John, and the work that you've done to save lives, change lives. But there's a man named Sid Hale, who is a teacher and mentor of yours, who, as you mentioned, you had the honor of planning his, his funeral, his, his funerary arrangements, his passing, you know, in this life. And that's no small thing. So... I felt like I knew this man after spending a couple hours with him and you last night, even in the digital format. And I thought it feels right to sort of have your story come through, but also honor and pay tribute to the mentors. I, yeah, I think that's, I think that's a great way to do it. We, I mean, to some degree, the season, the first season of the debrief is my mentors. Mm -hmm. Right. A lot of the guys that you see in legends and, and leaders segments in, in the podcast are the guys who brought me up. They're the guys who who created the culture. And, and Sid is is central to that. I mean, there is there is no artwork without Sid Hale. There is no John Becker in its current iteration without Sid Hale. Um, he I met him when I was almost 20 years old. I started the business when I was 17. I met him when I was almost 20. And uh, we just hit it off. We were just fast friends. And, you know, it's, you don't realize when you meet people, the impact that they're going to have on your life and, and, and the length. I mean, my friendship with Sid was almost 35 years. Mm -hmm. So it, it was the majority of my life. I'm 54. Right. So it's, mm -hmm. it, it, um, he impacted not only the way that I viewed the industry and, and my understanding of the industry, he was kind of a catalytic person in my professional and personal life in that he introduced me to people, connected me to people, uh, gave me out of the gate credibility that I would have not had as, as a 20 year old civilian, mm -hmm. you know, working with special operations teams. Um, but it, it was amazing how looking back, at the culture of the business, so many of the things that happened in my life kind of just ran through Sid, even, yeah. even if he wasn't there. And I think, I think the, the same to some degree was true. Um, we, we kind of, you know, towards the end of his life, we kind of mentored each other. Right. We, we were, we were a sounding board for each other and, and kind of the, the one that could give the Dutch uncle conversation. Yeah. Right. Like I was, I was, I remember these kids told me a great story, which was we were sitting down after he died. We we're sitting down. I sat down with the kids at, at the table and said, okay, like, you know, we need to think about what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. And I said, you know, um, 
I want to make sure we honor Sydney correctly. And, and his son laughed. And I said, why are you laughing? He goes, you're the only person on earth that ever called my dad Sydney and got away with it. Yeah, I was going to say, I didn't hear a lot of people refer to him as Sydney. <laughs> no, no. And he's like, you're the only one. And he goes, my dad loved it when you did it. Nobody else got away with it. Yeah. Um, it was just, it was one of those relationships. And it was, you know, it was, it was a lifelong relationship, you know, just about for me. Yeah. Um, but it, it is, you know, when I, when I first met Sid, I had just started the business. We were doing rock climbing equipment. And I started to deal with special operations groups and SWAT teams. And they would ask, you know, can you get me, you know, I, I, I felt like I needed to know more about the product than the guy that was buying it did. Yeah. Because otherwise I was just a sales guy and I didn't want to be a sales guy. Like it just, it just didn't feel right to be the, you know, the sales guy. So when we were selling climbing equipment, I learned a lot about it. Like at a really nerdy level, I understood the difference between ropes and carabiners and why you would pick one over the other. And so I started to deal with SWAT teams that were buying, you know, ropes for their teams. Mm -hmm. And we'd have these kind of detailed conversations about gear and I started to build these relationships and the teams would say, you know, can you get us Eagle nylon gear and say, oh, I don't know anything about it. I'll call this guy, get set up. We'll buy our nylon gear from you. That turned into chemical agents that turned into flashbangs that turned into all kinds of things. And so my rule was I would never turn down free training. Yeah. No matter what it was, yeah. it was free. I was going to get smarter. Even if it didn't seem to directly apply to what I did, it was the right decision. And so one of the people I met along the line there was Sid and Sid was at that point, the nation's expert on diversionary devices on flashbangs. Mm -hmm. He had literally written the NTOA manual on it. He had done the initial initial research for LA County sheriffs. It was right at the point that they were beginning to be used on a broad basis. And so I said, you know, I don't, I don't really understand these. And he said, oh, you know, come down, we'll have lunch. We'll go through it. And that was the beginning of a 35 year friendship. And, mm -hmm. um, it, it it changed the way I looked at the industry because he he kept introducing me to people. Say, well, I don't know anything about this. Oh, you should meet this guy. And then those people would introduce me to other people. And you ended up in this kind of with this giant network of people who, as it turned out, were literally the guys that innovated. They were the founders of LAPD SWAT and the founders of the Sheriff's Department team and, and you know, New York ESU and all of these early tactical units, which then grew into military business. Yeah. And interestingly, Sid was there too. So when the Marine Corps went to Somalia, Sid asked me to come down and work with the Marine Corps on non-lethal stuff, on, on riot control gear. And conversation started with what is non-lethals and ended with trained Marines off the coast of Kenya two weeks later. And that was the beginning of our military integration business, Yeah, which has since grown to, you know, to be very large projects and, and big business. But yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting. There was a word you said there before that I picked up out of, <clears throat> excuse me, the discussion. <clears throat> you can tell that like, my voice starts to change when I get emotional, right? Because I'm thinking about his journey. I'm thinking about yeah. this man's journey that he that he had. Um, there was a word you use, catalytic connector or catalytic connection. And one of the things I realized from his story was he was, as described, this catalytic connection between the military and the civilian world. Um, and And one of the things I found really fascinating, and I'd love for you to sort of talk about this because this was the beginning of your career in this space, was... Um, the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles and 
when Sid told this story and just, you know, for people that are listening, some context, um, John, you're a history buff. I'm a history buff. Sid was certainly a history buff. Oh yeah. Um, and you know, setting the scene around 1972 and the Munich Olympics and the hostage situation there and how in the 1970s, Europe was a political terrorist playground. For sure. And the, the television uh, aspect of hostage crisis, kidnappings uh, on planes, in, in buses and vehicles, in cities, this was sort of the, the everyday narrative on the news. And, and what was really interesting to hear, and I'd love for you to talk about the 1984 Olympics, because that was really, it sounded like, the beginning of the U.S., mostly civilian and military starting to say, hey, we have to do things differently here if we're going to protect our communities, certainly our Olympians, certainly our patrons. We have to do things differently and recognize that the tactics that were being used by terrorists at the time were changing as well, right? The, they were initially getting a lot of money and doing the hostage things. Then they turned to bombings. So that's when you entered the, that's when you entered the, the business uh, and started meeting some of these folks. Tell me about what that was like in 1984, around that so, time in so LA. So 80, my business starts in 87. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, we're in a, a period of rapid expansion of special tactics. People don't understand, like SWAT as a concept begins in the late 1960s. Mm-hmm. LAPD SWAT is the team that coins the phrase, you know, the expression SWAT. It was actually Daryl Gates is who it was attributed to. Um, in 1971. So LAPD becomes a full-time SWAT team in 1971. Prior to that, any problem that developed, you were just going to get normal patrol cops and they were going to deal with it. So, you know, there were a series of incidents that happened in the late 60s, early 70s in Los Angeles, Black Panther incident, the SLA shootout, where the, you know, the government began to look at these situations and realize, like, we're not equipped for this. We, we are not ready to deal with an armed adversary, you know, who in many cases is a Vietnam vet, right? well-equipped, understands, you know, knows asymmetric warfare, knows firepower, knows how to use it, knows tactics. Uh, you know, you go back to the, the, the original incident that gives rise to it is the Texas Tower incident. Charles Whitman yeah. at, at University of Texas, Austin, is the, the original incident where they realize like a guy with a high position and a rifle can kill people at will and yeah. there's nothing we can do. I've stood in that and tower. So, yeah. Have you really? Yeah. I have. So that, I've that been w- there. It's it's very. I mean, when you when you've seen some of that or heard some of that footage, and even some of the conversations of people, and then you stand in that tower and you look down, it's very eerie. It's a very oh, yeah. eerie experience. Yeah. No, he 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 had a uh, he you know he was a marine. He had marksmanship skill. He had tactical skill. He understood high, you know, the, the advantage gained by high ground. He had barricaded himself up there. Yeah. So if you start with Texas tower and then you kind of move through late sixties, social unrest. Um, and then the, the triggering event was the 1972 Olympics. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, for those that aren't familiar, 72 Olympic games, um, in Munich, the, uh, Black September group takes the Israeli, a number of Israeli athletes hostage, and you have a hostage situation that plays out over the course of 24 hours and ends with basically everybody dead in helicopters. Yeah. And the police didn't know what to do. They were unprepared for this kind of an event. 
as the event evolved, they made a series of now retrospectively bad decisions and it, it played out on national TV. I mean, you, you literally watch this whole thing play out and that was the beginning of this kind of epic of, of hostage taking terrorism. Yeah. And there were a series of events, you know, there's the Prince's Gate incident in London where they took the Iranian embassy hostage. There were a series, you know, in Tebby is the one that kind of everybody's familiar with mm -hmm. uh, where they seized a, an aircraft and, you know, landed in Tebby, Uganda. Um, but there were probably 10 or 12 events there, Munich being the first. And, and Munich was the one where all of the countries in Europe looked at their ability to respond and said, we're not prepared for this. And the U.S. did the same thing. And so you saw, you know, the, the beginnings of the rumblings of kind of counterterrorism forces all over the world, right? GSG-9, 22SAS, GIGN, all of these units have their genesis shortly after the, the 72 Munich Games. Mm -hmm. So in 84, the Olympics are coming to, to Los Angeles. And the, the president basically says, that's not going to happen here. Yeah. The state says that's not going to happen here. And so both LA County Sheriff and LAPD are tasked with being prepared for any kind of counter-terrorist incident, which, you know, at that point could be a bombing, but it could be, it could be a hostage takeover. And one of the interviews I did is with Mike Hillman. I think it's episode three mm -hmm. or four. Um, Mike was one of the guys, I mean, he was, he was one of the original 60 at LAPD SWAT. And Mike and I talk about it in the episode. It's like, so you were tasked with preparing for all of these things. And, and, you know, he says things like I was, we, you know, one of the things we figured out is if they took hostages and put them on a bus, like we had, we had to be able to intervene. And he said, so we had to figure out how do you attack a bus? Yeah. How do you retake a bus? Right. And, and so the guys that brought me up were the guys that were originally tasked with these problems. Right. What happens if we have a hostage situation in, in LA mm -hmm. and the, the amount of research that they did and, and, you know, you hear it in Sid's interview, you hear it in Mike Hillman's interview, you hear it in Lee McMillian's interview where they talk about sending people to Europe, mm -hmm. you know, sending people to meet with Delta, sending people to meet with FBI, FBI HRT, who was still a new unit at that point and figuring out what do we do? when somebody's taken hostage. Like now that makes sense to us. Right. Now, now there's a, there's a playbook for that. Yeah. There wasn't then. There wasn't in the eighties. There wasn't, um, you know, and, and one of the things Mike Hillman talked about was the evolution of crisis negotiation because until Harvey Schlossberg at, N, you know, at NYPD ESU came up with hostage negotiation, it, it wasn't a thing. Yeah. You were just going to storm it and people were going to get killed. Right. And, and so it's, you know, that was kind of the genesis of my career was shortly after the genesis of all this. It was probably, I mean, LAPD SWAT starts in 71, 84 games is where it expands. I start the business in 87. Mm -hmm. And so it is evolving rapidly when I land. And it, it just, you know, all of these guys are struggling to solve problems. And I ended up in the middle of a lot of very, you know, retrospectively very important conversations that I really had no business in. <laughs> um, but that was kind of where everything came from. And that was, that was what developed the culture for the business. You know, I didn't understand as a 20 year old man that meeting 
Sid and Mike Hillman and, and these kinds of guys was impacting the way I viewed the world. Yeah. It was impacting the way I viewed my end user. You know, I, I would say like when, when I was armoring people at the beginning of the thing, you know, putting armor on people, I was putting armor on friends. Right. Which means I really cared if yeah. they got hurt. And what I didn't understand and now retrospectively teaching culture centric leadership, I understand happened was they created a culture about the end user for a business where, where my job is to ensure that the people who place themselves in harm's way on our behalf are as safe as they can possibly be. Yeah. Well, and I think it's really interesting because one of the things I remember in your discussion with Sid that really stood out to me was, you know, he was talking about how um, success has many authors, but failure resounds anonymous, right? And, and one of the things he talked about was how early on, first of all, none of these tactics were written down. Like there was no, none of this stuff was put to paper. It was all oral tradition, right? Yeah. These were these were gentlemen who were, as you said, meeting each other sort of in the battle space, if you will, be that uh, military or civilian and talking to each other and just saying, hey, what are you doing and, and what does this mean? And one of the things that really stood out to me was when Sid said, we knew the entry vest the vests we were wearing were not going to work. So we put on our own vest underneath that. Yeah. And I just, I mean, in that moment, you, you, your breath kind of gets taken away because you think to yourself, we're asking people to stand and defend and the equipment they're using uh, is not sufficient. So they're having to go buy their own or make their own and that's where the work that you do comes into play when you said you're arming these these men, these friends, these mentors. It's because they started in a place where they had to think about the vest they were issued and the vest they bought to put underneath that. And I remember many military people in my, in my years in service had the same thinking, right? There's going to be the one they issue and there's going to be the one that I invest in or that I go to my friend for because he knows ballistics, he knows physics, he knows armaments, he knows how to defend life and limb. Yeah, there is a long tradition of us inadequately preparing, inadequately training, and inadequately protecting our warriors. And you can, you know, you can look back at the early times when you know, if you look at the early hostage situations, you know, look at the, the SLA shoot out of the Black Panther situations. I mean, those guys were wearing, you know, knit caps and T-shirts while being shot at. I mean, the SLA shootout, you go back and look, there are 5,000 rounds fired at about 40 feet apart. Wow. Right. It's, it's insane. And these guys were, you know, wearing T-shirts and a, a hat. Um, we, we, underestimate the danger to the, to our guardians. And, and part of that is because we, we want to underestimate it because it's scary. Right. Right. Like nobody wants to think about somebody going into a school and shooting their children, but yet in Uvalde, it happens, right? Sandy Hook, it happens. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of marginalize those events as, oh, that just, it never happens. It's so rare. 
we don't really need to equip these guys. And, you know, there's a whole movement to, to eliminate quote unquote militarization of law enforcement. And, and I think that there's, I think there's certainly an argument that our law enforcement needs to interact with us as a civilian law enforcement agency and, and a population, but it's a naive argument to think that that never happens. Because if you look at when events like Uvalde happen, you can say, well, you know, our, our police are not in combat or police are in combat when they're being shot at by somebody. Mm-hmm. Sid tells a great story on there of, of having a, a conversation with a military leader and they were coming to the sheriff's department and saying, we want to learn more about kind of urban warfare. And he's like, well, sir, we don't, we don't engage in warfare. And he's like, are yeah. they shooting at you? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, are you shooting back? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, that's warfare. Yeah. So, so we do have this long tradition of not caring enough. Mm-hmm. And, and that is, you know, it still manifests itself, you know, in, in the way we treat our warriors and the way we care for our warriors post their service. Yeah. Right. You, you look at the number of, of suicides among veterans, among law enforcement. You look at when a catastrophic event happens how many of those people subsequently kill themselves, subsequently mm-hmm. leave their jobs, get divorced? Like th- these are these are big, horrific events that have physiological and emotional consequences, and and we don't we don't pay enough attention to it. Yeah, I I think um, I mean it's part of the reason I use this platform, right, to connect with people like you, connect with with organizations in the past like the Heroic Hearts Project, because we don't tell enough of these stories of the guardians, right, of the defenders, of the those that put on the uniform. And, you know, I, I, I think I sent you an, an article yesterday that uh, talked about three different soldiers who recently took their life, young, 20-something, right? Two of them were rangers, right? These are the yeah. best of the best, right? Yeah. Um, this is a huge loss, um, not only to the services, especially to the families, to their loved ones, but actually to the future generations. I mean, these are, you and I chatted briefly yesterday, like these are, these are leaders that we need. I mean, if, you're, if, this, if this young man was 26 and took his life, there's an entire life ahead of him that really could have benefited our society, our world. And, and we have to we have to find out like what we're not doing to help these men and women in all uniforms we, because we, they're suffering. As a society, we have to care more. Mm-hmm. Like we, we want to put these things in a box because they're uncomfortable. Right. I, I recently interviewed uh, one of the operators from BRI in Paris. Um, they were the unit that you remember November 13, 2015, they have a multi-site, Nine terrorists take over three terrorist sites. Attack, coordinated yeah. terrorist attack. Exactly. They hit the Stade de France. They hit a bunch of cafes, uh, and they end up. Three of them end up at the Bataclan Theater. Walk into a concert filled with fifteen hundred people and open fire on the crowd with AK forty sevens, and and reload and continue to kill people. And you know, by the time this series of events is done, one hundred and thirty people are dead and four hundred people are injured and a bunch of lives are ruined. But in the interview with this operator, we talked about some really interesting aspects about that event. One, obviously the danger was horrific, right? Like, you know, the, the Bataclan incident ends up with 15 hostages in a hallway that's five feet wide and 30 feet long. 
barricaded behind a door with two terrorists wearing suicide vests with AK-47s. I want people to just stop for a second and picture. I want people to literally listening to close their eyes just for a moment. And I want you to restate those dimensions of the hallway if you can. So picture I want them to yourself picture in a hallway that's five feet wide and 30 feet long. There are 15 victims, hostages, that are scattered all over that hallway, several of them against the door being used as a human barricade. And in the hallway are two terrorists with suicide vests on and AK-47s. Mm-hmm. And the hostage negotiator has already told the team, these guys are going to die here. Mm-hmm. There is no negotiation here. We're not going to talk them out. The only question is how many people are we going to kill? So when the team has to make entry, the, the this operator, and, and we kept him anonymous because of his current job assignment, and so we don't even use his name, mm-hmm. but he, he talks about the feelings of being stacked on this door, knowing that they maybe are going to kill all the hostages because the guy sets off the bomb. Mm-hmm. Well, turning around and seeing another team staging behind them and asking the second team later, hey, what are you guys doing here? And he's like, we're here in case you guys get killed. Right. And now having to make entry. And so they, they make entry with this ballistic shield. One of the terrorists immediately engages them, shoots a total of 29 rounds at them. 26 of them hit the ballistic shield that they're using. So that would have certainly killed the team. The 27th round somewhere in there hits the only left-handed guy in their stack in the left hand, of course. Mm -hmm. So they see one of their guys go down. They're now trying to engage. They come into the room 10 feet and there's a step that they don't know is there. So the ballistic shield now falls. Down, right, because they've lost and the so step. The guy who's, yeah. Exactly. So the guy who's pushing the shield, which weighs 400 pounds, the guy who's pushing the shield is now standing there with no gun, facing a guy in a suicide vest with an AK-47, and promptly draws a handgun, engages the guy. I think he shoots him once or twice, and the guy blows himself up. Now, by dumb luck... He happens to rotate his body sideways. So when the bomb goes off, it goes into the walls. So it blasts, it doesn't, blasts radius towards the wall, not towards, towards them. Towards the walls, not yeah. towards them or the hostages. Yeah. Um, oh, by the way, as they're getting ready to go, they're also told that the guy's suicide vest is made out of an, a very volatile explosive. And so they can't so shoot they can't him in shoot the vest. Him. They have to shoot him in the head. Right. So, so like you think about this scenario and by the way, by the time this is done, both the terrorists are dead. None of the hostages are dead. One of their teammates is injured, but that's it. Like it it was one of the most spectacular hostage rescues I've ever seen. But this guy talks about it and he talks about, you know, the the feelings that they had and, you know, they they knew they were going to lose somebody. They might lose a couple of people. They didn't know, you know, you never know who it's going to be, but in those scenario, that scenario, like you're not going to win. Right. It's varying stages of losing. And I think that's the thing that people don't understand about so many of these situations is this is not like a win-lose situation. Mm -mm. This is how many points did you lose by? You're going to lose. Yeah. Something bad's going to happen. It's just a matter of how bad it's going to be. And yet these guys are willing to do this and engage this. And, you know, he talks about how they felt and he talks about 
you know, the moments afterwards mm-hmm. and, and walking through the, the pit of this theater where there are 80 people dead mm-hmm. and, and it's, the floor is covered in blood. And like, it's this horrible, graphic, terrible scene. And then having to go back, take a shower to wash the, the terrorist off of his body because they were hit by, you know, the explosion and then go home and, and like sit down with your wife and, you know, so how was your day? Mm-hmm. And just be expected to kind of move on. And human beings are not designed no. for this kind of trauma. And, and and we forget about it. You know, we forget about the fact that we are exposing these guys to explosions. And, and you know, that there's a whole body of work taking place right now on traumatic brain injury. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there are several big projects that they're engaging in. Like, why are these guys killing themselves? Why do we have this unprecedented suicide rate? Mm-hmm. And part of it is that we're exposing these guys, you know, to horrific conditions for extended period of time. We're not necessarily taking care of them afterwards and we're exposing them to chemicals. And, you know, it's just none of the guys that I work with are unaffected by their work. Yeah. It's, you know, there's, there's a couple of things that, that, in you, when you share this, I mean, I was thinking about some of the stuff that you and you and Sid talked about, and the things you learned from him. You know, one of one of the most powerful parts of your, um, you know, your recording with him and your time with him that is out there for posterity. Thank God, um, was when he talks about the loss, right? The loss of a hostage, um, and he gets emotional. Right, oh, yeah. and, and it was extremely moving, and I encourage people to go to go watch this because this is a reminder that it doesn't matter how many years go by. It doesn't matter how much um, you think you've moved beyond it. Um, we we carry those emotions, and he talks about loss of a hostage and what that what that does to. Uh, a police officer or a guardian. Uh, he talks about the loss of marriages of those mm. on the force. He talks about the loss of an officer by suicide. And one of the things that I really think you're hitting on that he so beautifully talks about, these are all unvoiced traumas, right? We don't speak about them. There are these unspoken heartbreaks that sort of every chief carries into the locker room with him. Yeah. And you lose sleep over it. I lose sleep over it. Your friends lose sleep over it. Their their wives and or husbands lose sleep over it. And this is night after night after night. And and part of the reason I think that you know men like Sid and others started writing this stuff down. Right. He was he was an avid teacher, but also a learner, was because similar to what you just described. Right. I can't envision what it's like to be in a 30-foot hallway, five feet wide, and then think you know the where you're standing and there's a step and you lose that shield and you, your, your gun goes with it and you've got, I can't know what that's like. And all of that is um, tacit knowledge. We somehow yeah. have to get it into the minds and the hearts, more importantly, of those that put on a uniform every day. And and part of what I loved about Sid's story was even when he was a Marine, right? 
he was he was um at jump school and he had his backpack right and he had all those books in the backpack and i love that he had that sergeant that said he said to him now you go study right like he literally said to him i want you to honor that it's time to study yeah. and i think sid mentioned that as one of the paramount moments for him when he had a first sergeant that said you you're what you're learning is extremely valuable and it's going to be valuable so i want you to study and sid passed that on he passed that on to you and a lot of these these men you're talking about but it started off as like oral tradition yeah 100%. how is it happening today how, how do we make sure that the situations like you just described i mean do we train for that we focus on too much. I, I think we focus on the how. I know you've talked about this too as well. Yeah. We've lost the why. We have. We very much have lost the why. And I think it's a natural evolution, right? I, I think that when you're trying to figure things out, so if you go back to, you know, early 70s, early 80s, they're trying to figure out how do we solve these problems. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, LA sheriffs, LAPD are sending their people all over the world, right? A terrorist incident occurs. And they're taking somebody like Sid, and it often was Sid, mm -hmm. um, you know, or Mike Hillman from LAPD, and they're saying, go over and meet with 22SAS and, and hear about the Prince's Gate incident and, and what they did for hostage rescue and what worked and what didn't work and, and debrief them. Yeah. Right. Which is where the name of the show comes from. Right. It's, yeah. it's, it's debrief them. It's heavy conversation, find out what, what worked, but more importantly, find out what didn't work. Yeah. And right. bring it back. And so initially it is oral tradition. Initially it is a few key teams, you know, worldwide getting together and figuring mm -hmm. it out together. Right. It's, 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 you know, at that point with SEAL Team 6, it's Delta, it's the FBI hostage rescue team, it's LAPD, it's LA Sheriff, it's New York ESU, and then it's a bunch of European teams getting together and having conversations. Well, what happens is a guy named John Coleman, who's a, at that point a lieutenant at LA County Sheriff's Department, looks at this and says, we need to figure out a way to put this together and, and pass this on and share it. Because not everybody's going to have the opportunity to interact with you know the guys that did the, the Bataclan raid. Right. So he creates the National Tactical Officers Association, NTOA. And it's John and Mike Hillman and, you know, a few others, Ron McCarthy, who we're going to interview in two sessions, two episodes away, mm -hmm. um, sit down and like, how, how do we do this? How do we share information? Let's do a conference once a year. Let's have mm -hmm. a magazine. And, and that begins the idea that we're going to share lessons learned. Yeah. And, and, you know, and start to formalize the mechanisms through which this happens. And, and that impacted me because as, as, you know, early in my career, I went to hundreds of debriefs, mm -hmm. anything that was being debriefed, I went to and, and heard what happened and heard what worked and heard what didn't work. And it wasn't relevant to my life because I was going to go do those things. It was relevant to my life because if I understood what my end user did, I was better able to safely equip them. I understood what would work for them and what would keep them safe and not get in their way. And so that was a, another point that kind of created the culture of the business. Well, we paid that forward to the next generation by running what we call our evening lecture series, mm. which is where we will bring in a team that has recently had an event and pull together a hand-picked audience and debrief the event and share the information. 
The thing people don't understand is the problem for law enforcement, especially in the United States, is because of civil, civil litigation and because of the way that media treat law enforcement, they are structurally prevented from learning from their mistakes. Tell because they have to defend themselves, mm. right? So you look yeah. at, you look, and Uvalde is going to play out very publicly and it is playing out very publicly. But when an event like that happens, everybody begins to attack the department for what they did and, and attack the department for their response. Because again, they're not going to win, right? No matter what they do, something bad is going to happen. Something bad has already happened, right? If you look at Columbine, most of the killing is done before the police get there. But when the police get there, they don't take the actions that retrospectively they would take now, right? But, you know, 25 years later, Uvalde almost repeats Columbine. Yeah. And, and so what happens is we politically want to vilify the person that is responsible. But in the process, what we do is we send everybody under the rocks to hide because they don't want to be the one that the, the media or politicians key on and destroy their career. So instead of us taking a look and going, what really went wrong here and what are we doing to prevent this the next time? Mm-hmm. Right? Like I, I, I always, one of the, one of my points of frustration with the, the way that we're currently handling these kinds of events publicly in the media and in, in review, you know, reviews is we're not taking the time to actually pick the lessons learned and we're just trying to fix the blame. Yeah. Right. And, and one of my, key business points is don't fix blame, fix problems. Mm-hmm. Don't try to figure out whose fault it is. Try to figure out systemically why did this happen and how could we have prevented it? And so what's happening is we are repeating the same mistakes because we're not taking the time to really learn the lessons and say, hey, wait, why did this happen? What, you know, yeah, th- look, there's going to be random psychopathic individuals that are going to do horrible things and there have been since the dawn of time. We can't prevent those kind of people who are planning an event. You know, we, we certainly try as a society, we do everything we can and FBI foils more terrorist plots than we're even aware of, mm-hmm. but every once in a while, one of them works. So when that happens, when we respond, what's the right thing to do? What's the wrong thing to do? How do we learn our lessons from that? And instead of saying, well, it's all the chief of police's fault or the new victim, the new villain in the story now is the captain from TPS, but you had a hundred and something cops standing by for 77 minutes while children were killed. Why is that occurring? And what are we as a society, what choices are we making that is that that is the result? Because it's a systemic thing. And, and I think we're making a lot of choices that lead us to unintended consequences. I think that in the process of punishing police officers when they make mistakes, and if what they do is unconstitutional, we need to. Like underlying this all is law enforcement, you know, we give police departments permission to police us. And the Constitution is the guidelines that they have to follow. So assume that as an underlying floor. It is never okay to be unconstitutional. It is never okay for, you know, racist, sexist, you know, none of that is ever okay. And I think if you talk to, you know, almost any modern law enforcement officer, you would hear that. I don't think anybody looked at the George Floyd case and thought, man, that was great. Right. Everybody to a one that I've talked to about it is appalled. Mm -hmm. So set that as a floor. 
beyond that, we are making choices where we're looking at aggressive policing. We're looking at aggressive action. We're looking at the kinds of people who seek danger. And we're saying, I don't really want that guy to be a police officer anymore. I don't, I don't want the police to be aggressive because we're safe. We're way up the Maslow triangle. We're comfortable. We're not worried about our physical security. But then Uvalde happens and we turn around and go, well, why weren't they running in there? Yeah. Well, because we, we have all golden retrievers, guys. Like we have, we've unintentionally selected golden retrievers for our canine program and they don't bite anybody. And when we ask them to bite somebody, they can't. And it's, you know, that there's, I always tell a story of like, there's a high rate of deafness in Dalmatians, almost 30%, 22%, one ear, 8% both ears. And people have wondered for years, why, why are there so many, why is that such a problem? Well, it turns out when you pick for spots and blue eyes, you unintentionally select deafness. I think in the process of us vilifying police officers that make mistakes and trying to crucify them after the fact, when an event like Uvalde happens, what we're doing is we are driving away the guardians that would run into harm, right? The guys standing in the hallway in Bataclan that are willing to make that entry might not be the best school resource officers, right? They may not be the warmest, fuzziest guys we have, but thank God they were there because there's 15 hostages that are alive. Actually, there's 25 in that hallway that are alive because those guys were willing to run into a hail of bullets and, and harm. And if we continue to look at aggression as, as a, as a sin, you know, as a, a terrible thing that we shouldn't do when we need aggression, it will not be available. Yeah. There's something else that you mentioned that just, I, I really want to um, zero in on a little bit here. When you said, um, when, when officers are always in a state of defense, you know, the first thing you have to do is think about how am I going to defend myself or I'm going to be attacked. I mean, neuro, there's neuroscience to show you can't do any learning in that state at all. Correct. And, and it's kind of like what, you know, the analogy that I might use based on what you and, you, you and Sid talked about, the amygdala hijack, right? And now yeah. in this case, you're talking about a flashbang, right? And I love that part of the conversation you had because you helped me understand that when a flashbang goes off, um, what it does is it, it, it's, as you guys kind of call that exploitation window, right? And it, it hijacks your amygdala for just long enough that you were unable to sort of find your bearings. And in the case of what you and Sid describe, uh, if there is someone with a weapon and the flashbang goes off, they can't even, you know, pick up their weapon because the body is incapable of, um, you know, gripping and grasping because it's under this state of uh, this concussive state. It's well, it's, it's sensory overload. It's yeah. not even a concussive state. It's sensory overload. Okay. It's you, you, we are flipping so many switches at the same time, right? Your overpressure on your skin, loud mm -hmm. sound, bright flash. That doesn't happen. Just the, just the air pressure change that occurs with a flashbang doesn't happen unless you fall thousands of feet in an airplane. Right. So when it does happen, your brain goes, oh my God, bad things are happening. Everybody shut up. Mm -hmm. I need to focus on this. Mm -hmm. When the process of that happening, 
you've put that guy in a, in a position where he's not able to quickly arm himself. He's not able to shoot accurately. And, you know, remember that the, the goal of special tactics is always to put the suspect in a situation where surrender is likely and resistance is futile. Yeah. Right. Because if you know that you're behind in the gunfight and you're surrounded by guys with guns, the likelihood that you give up goes up dramatically. And so that's that's what a flashbang does. It, it does. It, it puts you in this state of of sensory overload and and inhibits your ability to effectively fight, mm-hmm. which then as you start to come out of it, you realize like, oh, my God, I'm surrounded. Well, and not to belabor the analogy, again, I think it's really interesting when you described what the media does to a department or officers. In some sense, it's almost a similar experience in the sense that uh, the the sort of assault, if you will, uh, on, you know, puts puts the the officer, the department, in, in some cases, in a state of defense so much that uh, they can't necessarily, well, they certainly can't learn anything, right? And, and as you talk about, like, you want to immediately learn what lessons uh, not to repeat. Yeah. Um, but if the mind is not in a safe place to learn, to explore, to inquire, to wonder, to admit mistake, then none of that can happen. And and the the sort of shaming and blaming and gaming that takes place, I think, or I, I wonder, sets back so much of this discussion around progress that could happen. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Is that fair? Yeah, you know, it's it's absolutely correct, okay. and it is. It has gotten worse over the thirty five years of my career. It's gotten worse. Mm-hmm. Um, at least initially, when there was an event, because there was a lack of immediate media. Well, yeah, social right. media you, you didn't, didn't exist. Have yeah. 15 different camera views. and Imagine uh, Munich 72 with social media. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, they would have been tweeting from the situation. and mm-hmm. But it, it, it creates this environment where the only choice they have is to circle the wagons. Yeah. Right? They're, they're going to get sued. They're going to get vilified. They may be charged criminally. That's not a moment where you're going to stand by and go, hey, did I make a mistake here? No. And then the fact that we are going to crucify whoever made the, you know, the mistake, which sometimes we need to, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes, sometimes the, the mistake is so glaring and so catastrophic and so indicative of poor character that we need to. But there are also a lot of honest mistakes that, that you know, blow up in their face and, and we're not going to learn from those. And, and more importantly, I make a lot less stupid decisions 35 years into my career than I did five years into my career. Right. And the reason is because I have repeatedly fallen down, right? You think about learning to ride a skateboard. Mm-hmm. The only way you learn to ride a skateboard is repeatedly falling off of a skateboard. And the problem right now is we're firing you the first time you fall off the skateboard. I was going to say, nobody's giving you another chance. So you're never going to learn to ride a skateboard. And, and sadly, as an agency, you're not going to learn to ride a skateboard. And that's why 25 years after Columbine, we look at Uvalde and we're like, oh my God, they did the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they did. Mm-hmm. And, and we're not like, we're not focusing. I remember, so when I was, when I was in law school, I, my last two years, I spent LAPD police litigation. I was lucky enough to work on the Rodney King case and a variety of others. But I remember when the Rodney King case settled saying how much baton training and tactics training could LA have, LAPD have done for $4 million? 
probably enough that that kind of thing might not happen again. Mm-hmm. And you look at all these situations and departments are begging for training. They're begging for money for training, but yeah. police training is expensive, right? Anytime because of mandatory staffing, anytime I'm going to take bill off the street to train him, yeah, the department is going to pay bill. They're going to pay the guy that trains bill and they're going to pay the guy that replaced bill. Yep. And so we don't, we don't, find the kind of funding we need. We don't, you know, the departments aren't finding the, they're not finding the gear they need. They're not finding the training they need. And then we put them in these horrible situations and we, we retrospectively criticize what they did. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not a successful strategy. The strategy should be what would have made a difference. How could we have gotten that done? And how does that inform our future behavior? And the same is true with our military, right? Mm -hmm. The same is true with, we have all of these special operators that are killing themselves or, you know, are coming back and they're damaged and they're having memory problems. And and we're not, you know, just now we're starting to pay attention and, and ask the question, like, what can we do to fix this? But if, if we don't want to have these consequences, we need to stop repeating the same stupid behaviors and give these guys the training and the support that they need mm-hmm. to not engage this. If they're bad cops, you get rid of them. Like if, mm-hmm. if, if, if they're engaging, if they're racist, they're engaging in unconstitutional conduct, whatever. Yeah, we have to deal with that. But not every bad thing that happens is a result of racism or hatred or, or vitriol. Frequently, it is a lack of training. It's a lack of understanding. Sometimes it's just there's no way to win. Mm-hmm. Right? If they had gotten to Uvalde and run in immediately and killed the hostage taker. The question still would have been, why weren't the police there sooner? Yeah. And why wasn't the school better protected? And how can this happen? Well, and I think what's really interesting, you know, one of the one of the things we we immediately want to focus on from a sort of a, a media standpoint is like you said, um, who's to blame? What went wrong? Um but what, what's really interesting is I, I wonder, is there an appetite for if and when those discussions can happen about what's uh, legally right and morally wrong, right? L- we'd love to be able to get yeah. to that place to have that discussion, but it's hard to do that because we're not even giving the space, the place, the opportunity to do that. And you know, one of the quotes that I remember um, Sid shared, which was very profound, was, I think it was from General Mattis, right? And he said the the most important six inches on the battlefield are between your ears. And I would argue it's the same for law enforcement. Yeah, We're not allowing them the space or the place to even actually have the brain, the brain space to inquire and wonder what could I have done differently? Because as you said, we don't have the right training. We're, we're not, we're not equipping them we're asking them to be in five different places at once and they have to worry about the um, sort of after of the, you know, after blast, if you will, of the media. So I don't think there's any space in the brain to, to, to do inquiry, to do reflection when you're in that state of, um, and essentially it's fight or flight, just a different measure and mechanism of it. Yeah, it's it's funny. One of the uh, so one of the guys I interviewed was Lee McMillian, who's the current lieutenant over LAPD SWAT, and we talked about selection, 
Mm-hmm. How does LAPD SWAT, which is one of the preeminent SWAT teams in the world, I mean, they are they are recognized worldwide. Teams from all over the world come to LA to spend time with LAPD SWAT. Um, I, I, one of the questions I asked him is like, what's the profile? Who's the guy you're looking for? Yeah. And he talked about going through selection with FBI HRT and watching, they had a, a psychologist named Doc Middleton who went through and and Lee spent some time with this this doctor and they were psychologically profiling the guys trying to figure out who's the right guy. And this guy worked with, he works with the SEAL teams, he works with Delta, he works with all the major tier one units. He's he's a consultant to help them pick the right guys. And he said, you know, what are you looking for? And he said, raw intelligence. Yeah. First and foremost, raw intelligence. And when, when I asked Lee the same questions, his response was, I want thinkers. Mm-hmm. I want guys that can go into difficult situations, keep their brain calm enough that they can think, not react emotionally, yeah, and and, and really have time to to use the brain that they were given. And I, I do think that that's an absolutely critical component. But a lot of that thinking is making it into adulthood. Yeah, it starts right? early, right? It starts. Yeah, like way you think earlier. about it, like you know, you do stuff now. I, I have a twenty-one-year-old son, and it's like. I listen to things his friends are doing and think, yeah, I would have been that stupid, but we will sit down and have a conversation. It's like, here's why that doesn't work. Yeah. And, and all that wisdom that accumulates happens through mistakes. Right. I, I yeah. remember I, I, I race cars for a hobby and I, I spent a day at the track testing with my coach and trying to improve my skills. And I had a great morning and, you know, I'm like, I, I didn't lose the car. I didn't slide off track. Like I'm, I am absolutely rocking it. I am Mario Andretti today. And we sit down to lunch and he, he debriefs me and goes, so, so what do you think of the morning? So it went great. Never lost the car, never lost control. Like it was awesome. And he goes, it's cause you're slow. <laughs> and I said, well, 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 you know, what do you mean? Like, I did a good job. And he's like, yeah. no, it's cause you're slow by its nature. Driving a race car is risky. You are on the edge. You're going to periodically lose control. You're going to periodically slide the car. If you want to be fast, you have to find that edge. Mm-hmm. And if you think to yourself, wow, this is totally safe, you're not doing it well. Yeah. The same is true here. The situations we put modern law enforcement into are dangerous and they're complicated and they're, and they're multi-layered and, and they're going to make mistakes. And if the mistakes are made out of bad faith, yeah, we need to deal with that. Mm-hmm. But if they're honest mistakes, we don't need to fire that guy. We need to have him teach other people about the mistake. Mm-hmm. And that was when you look at the evolution of SWAT, that was really what made it happen, right? So you look at Munich in 72, it goes completely to shit. Like it is, everybody is killed. It is terrible. Mm-hmm. A few years later, in Tebby, Prince's Gate, Bern, Switzerland, Mogadishu, Somalia, There is a series of successful hostage rescues where these teams interdict an impossible, I mean, an airplane full of hostages with hostage takers on it is about as bad as it can possibly get. Mm -hmm. And you have this series of successful hostage rescues on airplanes and and, and airports and embassies. and, And the reason that happened was the teams began to share information and adapt their tactics and flashbangs come on the scene and they start Mm -hmm. using flashbangs and they start using explosive breaching and like they just evolved to where we are now. Now, some can argue that, 
you know, Radley Balco in his, his book about demilitarization of law enforcement argues we've gone too far. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are instances where that, that is a valid argument. Mm-hmm. And we need to find the range of appropriate things, but we can't swing the pendulum from side to side. And, and it's too much now. That's what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, um, you talk about end state a lot with yep. Sid. Um, from where you sit now, and I think this is probably an evolving answer because even you sitting down with your heroes and your mentors and your leaders, like you're still learning stuff, which I, which I love about that Every exchange day. that you do because, um, I mean, part of the reason we do what we do is because we love to learn and we know we reserve the right to get smarter. Yes. Um, always. When you think about end state for aardvark, right? The, 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 the armoring up, the defending, the, the, the work that you do in that capacity, what does that end state look like? And the same for debrief, because I think, I think in many ways, these complement each other, as you described, it's one thing to arm up these men and women, right? With physical protection and tactics. It's another to arm their brain yeah. and their heart to allow well, and, them to go into those moments feeling so supported. I always, I always look at like, I describe body armor as the parachute in a fighter jet. It's there because sometimes tactics and skill don't save you, mm-hmm. but it's not your primary defense mechanism, right? The primary defense mechanism for the hostage that's been taken hostage or for the officer that's interdicting is, is tactics and strategy yeah. and skills. Right. That, that is, you know, speed, surprise, violence of action, right? Like that is the thing that ultimately increases the margin of safety for them. So when you're, when you have to, when you're using your body armor, <laughs> it's because, you know, the first one didn't work when the fighter jet pilot pulls the, the ejection seat, it's cause the plane's going into the ground and he's going to save himself. Mm-hmm. That's how I look at what I do. The, the stuff that I do is there as a secondary protective device. The primary protective device is the six inches between their ears. Yeah. Right? It's their brain. It's their skill. It's their knowledge. And so it has always been, and part of it is because of Sid. I'll divert and give you a quick story. Sure. Early into my career, Sid was teaching a flashbang class with me. I was teaching legal aspects. And a guy came up and said, you know, at this point it was slides. Yeah. Right? Like actual overheads. Yeah. And the guy comes up and he goes, People don't know what those are, but I do. Yeah. He's like, hey, is there any way I can copy your slides and your outline? Now this is like this is intellectual property, right? Like this is a class Sid is being paid to teach. Yeah, and he hands it to him and says, "Yeah, there you go." Mm-hmm. And the guy's like, "Seriously?" And I said, "Yeah." And so I said to Sid afterwards, "I said, why would you, why would you give that guy your outline? Like he may go teach that class and compete against you." And he said, "You don't hoard information. Yeah, you share information because information is safety, and you never hoard it. Yeah, a- and." You have a responsibility when you are given knowledge to share that knowledge with other people. The debrief is an extension of the culture of Aardvark that part of my job, especially as CEO, most of my job is connecting people. It's introducing teams to each other. It's setting up events where teams can come in and share information. It's being a source of information so that when somebody has a new problem and says, hey, how do we solve this? How do we keep our guys safe in this scenario? I could say, here's the way 20 other teams did it. Mm -hmm. 
So the end state for me is operator safety. And, and the extension of operator safety is, of course, public safety, right? Because if if all the guys that make the Bataclan entry are killed, so are all the hostages. Yeah. So we we need that exchange to be as safe as possible for both the operators and the hostages. And, and if possible, for the suspect. I mean, in the priority of life, he's, he's certainly a, a distant third for me. Mm-hmm. Hostages, officers, yeah. distance third you know, suspect, but effective tactics and well-trained operators and, and well-trained cops increases the likelihood that the suspect survives. Yeah. You know, we're seeing it right now with drones where people are, are concerned about drones, you know, drones are going to be used to kill people. Drones are saving people's lives every day mm-hmm. because what's happening is you have a suspect, a barricaded suspect with a weapon. If they can, confront that guy with a drone or a robot they gather more information they can negotiate with him he knows he's lost the tactical advantage he may give up if i have to put a person in there mm-hmm. right if that's an officer that steps in that room uh, you're giving the guy a split second to make a life-changing decision and the fact that he is barricaded in a house with a swat team indicates he's not great at making life life-changing decisions yeah Right, like he's he's not made a series of good decisions that led him to this this situation in the first place. Yeah, so he's, he's probably not, not going to make the right decision now. <laughs> yeah, right, under duress and under pressure. That's yeah, just exactly. Not how the human brain works. It's yeah. it's not how it, it's not how it works. So it's it's for me that is the end state. Right, the 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 nice thing with my career and my life is it has been I, I have a very easy clear mission. Mm-hmm. Right, it's it's not there's no nuance here. There's no. Uh, you know, conflicting objectives. It is it is a very specific purpose, which is to keep these people safe. And and the debrief gave me a platform because I started to realize that I'll tell you the actual origin story was we had been talking about how we're not capturing lessons learned and there's a lot of you know information isn't shared and part of the problem is it's difficult for guys like Sid to talk to the media. Absolutely. Because they're not looking for Sid to give them a, a, a grain of wisdom. They're looking for Sid to say something they can use. Yeah. And so what happens is our law enforcement doesn't talk to the media. They can't. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we don't, we don't, this information isn't shared. And guys like him don't publish anything because it ends up being used against them. So we were having a conversation about it. And then one of our friends who was one of Tim's, one of Sid's closest friends, uh, a guy named Tim Anderson. Tim was a Marine Colonel and a Sergeant at LAPD. Same thing, military law enforcement fusion. Mm-hmm. And Tim got ALS. And we were standing at Tim's funeral and having a conversation about how much did we lose today? How many, yeah. you know, how many hundreds of years of experience lived in Tim's head from all the research and all the, you know, having multiple careers that just evaporated. And we said, you know, we, we've really got to figure out a way to capture this stuff. And that mm-hmm. led to a discussion about how do you do this in a way that you can't go hire a movie company to make a documentary about it because they own the footage. They're going to share yeah. the footage. You, you know, they're going to look for that man bites dog moment. Yeah. So I said it kind of half-heartedly like, I mean, I could do it. In the same way that when we do debriefs, Mm-hmm. It's it's my house. Yeah. It's my rules. I pick the audience. 
everybody's excluded. There's no cell phones. There's no mm-hmm. recording. I could do that. And so that kind of spun out this idea of what if I interview these guys because I've known them, they trust me. I have the footage. So nobody, you know, if they say something that's questionable or they misspeak or, or whatever, it's, it doesn't end up being the focus of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, what if I do that? And then we can capture these guys before we lose them. Yeah. The tragic thing about it is I knew Sid was going to be at the beginning because Sid's at the beginning of my origin story. Yeah. What I didn't know is six weeks after I interviewed him, he was going to die. Yeah. And it instantly validated. Uh, one of his kids watched after the service and after everything, one of his kids watched the debrief and sent me a thing that said, thank you for capturing my dad. Like he really was. Yeah. Which, you know, you think about that, like being able to get this information and share it with generations going forward. It's it's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, how could I not do that? How do I not, how do I not have an obligation to do that? Mm -hmm. Sitting in the position that I'm in, knowing all the people that I know, having them willing to share information with me. Mm Mm-hmm. How is it not my obligation to use that information for good? Yeah. And so, you know, that that was what started it. And well, it's and been I, amazing. And, yeah, I mean, it it is, as I said at the beginning, I felt like I knew him, right? Yeah. And And to me, there's something, you said the word trust in there. To be able to create a platform, an environment, a place that is completely rooted in trust is such a rare thing these days, right? Yes. For all the reasons we've talked about, right? We don't need yeah. to, to repeat them, but yeah. that is a gift in itself. And then what comes out of that is a gift for so many other people. And so, you know, one of the things um, I was thinking about sort of as I turned in last night is, you know, you met Sid when you were, what, 19? 19. Did you, did you envision yourself giving your voice as part of this beautiful patchwork of like purpose and, and gifts at his eulogy. No. I mean, I don't know. I, 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 I watched, I watched the ceremony last night too, by the way. Oh yeah, man. Yeah. Um, it was hard. Yeah. I mean, you talked, you talked about during it, it was really interesting because to see someone like Sid come to life on my screen to feel like, I mean, to me, there were so many elements of commanders I've worked with and military officers and mentors that I've had and uncles and parts of a father and a grandfather, all of that came through. Yeah. And and then I know the timeline and I know that this is posthumously, right, being viewed. Yeah. And I just typed in his name in Google. And the first thing that came up was the Celebration of Life video, right? Wow. And I felt really compelled. I'm going to watch this. Like, I feel like I know this man because of what you've brought into my home. Yeah. And I, I, I was left with sort of this, like, how do we honor the gifts of that in today's world? I mean, you know, there's this levels of divisiveness and division, but... And all of that's out there. 
But, you know, prior to you and me engaging just a few months ago, we were perfect strangers. Yeah. And now I've got five pages of notes on things your mentor has taught me. Yeah. Well, this is the problem, right? Like we've, we have allowed social media, the media, and, and even, even food companies Mm -hmm. to exploit our evolutionary biology. Yeah. Right. We are hardwired for certain survival skills. And one of those survival skills is that we, if you tell us something positive, we feel pretty good about it. We get a little Mm -hmm. tiny dopamine hit. Dopamine. Yeah. (laughs) If you tell us something negative, we get a gigantic dopamine hit. Mm -hmm. Right. Because if you think about evolutionary past when, you know, human beings are living in caves, uh, knowing that the rattlesnake lives under the fruit tree Mm -hmm. is, is a really valuable thing. Knowing that the oranges tasted better than they did last year, not so much, yeah. right? Me knowing that your kid is going to Harvard is is like, oh, good for you, congratulations. Me knowing that your kid has COVID and is at school is a more important evolutionary thing. Mm-hmm. And so we're hardwired to receive negative information. The problem is that we have entire industries that are making their living hijacking that evolutionary biology. Literally printing cash on it. Yes, literally printing cash on it. I mean, you look at the the Alex Jones trial and the billion-dollar verdict, right? He knew what he was saying was false. He was making millions of dollars a day lying and creating divisiveness. Mm -hmm. And as long as we're willing to consume it, they're going to continue to feed it to us. Mm -hmm. And, And... you know, you, you sit down with any two people, I don't care how different they are politically, put them in a room over dinner, mm-hmm. um, they're going to find common ground. Yeah. The problem is common ground's not interesting. Common mm-hmm. ground doesn't get us excited. It doesn't raise our ratings. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's, it's this double-edged sword of we need to have open, honest conversations. We need to be trusting. We need to, to have an opportunity to learn each other's positions while at the same time, we need to learn from the mistakes that we make. Yeah. You know, I, I tell the story in the podcast and we ended up doing an infograph on it because we got so much reaction to it, is the first guy that found a rattlesnake got bit. Mm-hmm. If he didn't tell anybody, the second guy that found a rattlesnake also got bit. And that perpetuated until somebody said, hey, wait a minute. I found this thing down by the river. It's got a tail that <laughs> rattles and stripes and it's got big fangs and don't touch it. And yeah. if everybody listened to that, nobody touched the rattlesnake again. Mm-hmm. And then every time it happened, it was an accident, right? Right now we've created an environment where we not only are not teaching each other about rattlesnakes, we're trying to destroy each other on social media and, and through the press and, and actually vilify you for getting bit by the rattlesnake. Yeah. Oh yeah. Bill's just stupid. Bill got, look how dumb Bill was. Bill got bit. And then everybody that could learn about the rattlesnake just thinks Bill's stupid instead of thinking, huh, wonder how that could affect me. Mm -hmm. What if I come across one of those things? Yeah. And you know, to, to look at the theme, you know, one of the things that I love about your podcast and your message and your platform is this idea of change Mm. is this idea that we are, I am a smarter guy today than I was yesterday. Yep. I, I, I used to say every day I lead a bigger business than I've ever led 
that's more complicated than I've ever led. And every day I become a little bit better as a result. And I think that platforms like yours, hopefully like the debrief, create an environment where we can exchange that information and you can really see. You know, I mean, I've I've had friends that are kind of mildly anti-law enforcement that watched the Lee McMillian episode. Mm -hmm. And one of my friends who's kind of vehemently anti-cop watched it and said, I had no idea those guys were that smart. I had no idea they cared that much. Wow. Because you listen to it and you're like, this is not a guy that wants to go kill people. This is a guy that wants to go save people. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that requires people be killed, mm-hmm. right? Bataclan's a perfect example. But there is a dramatic difference between the two. And if we don't start to understand each other's perspectives, we don't, we're not going to, we're not going to develop. We're not going to grow. We're not going to come together as a society. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I feel like hopefully we are at an inflection point right now where we're going to look back at the last 10 years and say, we've not gotten better. Like we may have actually seen the zenith of humankind here, (laughs) which is, which is a terrifying thought. I know. I saw a tweet from someone (laughs) saying, um, we might've reached the zenith in the 1990s and the early two thousands. And I, and I thought to myself, well, that was from my middle school years to the end of my graduation of college. I, I like, mean, we certainly did for music, right? Like that's clearly well, yeah. 80s. Yeah, I mean, but I saw a diagram recently. It's like the evolutionary diagram, you know, like the, mm-hmm. the crawl, walk, run diagram. Yeah. And then it had another guy crawling past the guy that's oh, running. Oh, no. <laughs> and it was like, you know, and it had like, you know, I figured it was like 2000 and then like an arrow. Um, it, it is. And I, I just, I feel like the guys like Sid that have so much wisdom. Mm-hmm. And the first season is full of these guys. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's full of these guys that, that mentored me and brought me up and, um, and just have these amazing lessons. And, well, and it's, it's, it's also really amazing how much Sid shows up in other, other conversations, right. With Marcus oh, yeah. and with, I mean, everybody j- just, just when I thought like, okay, I'm not actually, you know, I kind of, it, it's a little bit strange, but I think you'll understand what I, what I mean. I kind of went through a little bit of a grief loss because I, I'd spent all of this, you know, time with you and, and Sid in that, in that listening, as I mentioned, I felt I knew him. I felt I understood the way, you know, sort of the, the gentleman's rule and the golden rule. Like there were all those things that he exhibited yeah. and I was like, yes. And then when I watched the celebration of life, I thought, man, like, what do I do with all that hope now? Yeah. And, you know, all of the, like, how do we honor the gifts? And, you know, he, he taught so many people that, life is fleeting and tomorrow's not promised, right? And then I found myself listening to another episode where there are men younger than me talking about him. And I'm like, well, he's uh, not gone. Oh, no. No, 100%. Like, <laughs> you listen to the episode with, with you know, Marcus Sprague and Brent Stratton. Yeah. Or you listen to the episode with Toby Darby and Josh Wofford. Like, those guys all went through the Cato Strategic Leadership Program, which, which Sid created – and, and it, it grew out of a conversation at one of our events where it's like, why, why are we not, they, they were talking about how to mentor people and, and make younger tactical operators understand the lessons of the past and, and yeah. engage. And, and I just offhandedly said, well, what you guys need to do is what you did with me. Like all of you yeah. smart guys need to take somebody, put them under your wing and make them smarter. And hit record. I, and, and yeah, hit record. 
And so they created the Cato Strategic Leadership Program, and those guys all went through that and had. I remember Marcus saying um, one night, I think it was at the graduation dinner, he said, The thing that makes me sad is that we are the last generation that will have direct access to these guys. Yeah. And it was so profound because it I was felt that shortly after that that everybody started to go. Yeah. I mean, I felt that. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a. A military officer, I've got law enforcement in my family. I wouldn't necessarily say I, I've spent as much time in the in the throes of law enforcement, certainly as you have and others that I have, but I felt that last night. Yeah. You know, the thing is, I, one of the things that I love about these episodes is these guys remind us what a man is. And I don't mean that in a gender stereotype. You know, it's it's they remind us that a human being can be honest, can be responsible, can be balanced, can be passionate, can be brave. And the the part of it that I didn't expect is can be vulnerable. I think one of the things that kind of, you know, you do a podcast, you've done a lot of episodes, like sometimes things hit you out of the blue. Mm -hmm. I did not expect as many of these guys to cry and be vulnerable like they were. Sid was so much more raw in his interview mm-hmm. than I expected. And it, I remember um, one of the moments for me was in, while I was interviewing Lee McMillian, like Lee is, Lee is the guy I want running at Lake PD SWAT. Mm-hmm. Like he, he is, he is a warrior poet. He's a you know, Fulbright scholar, you know, great family man, wonderful father, great friend, like good, just hum, good human. Yeah. One of the questions I asked the guys is what is the most profound memory of your career? And I look over and Lee's eyes are flooded. Mm-hmm. And I said, Let, like, let's take a break. Whatever, which was the stupidest thing I've ever done, but let's take Should a roll, keep rolling. <laughs> yeah, no, no kidding. Yeah, that's my, my, my we producer looked at me and he's like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> it's like, I don't, I don't want to, these guys to have to be vulnerable if they don't want to be vulnerable. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I said, whatever you're thinking about, like, we don't have to talk about that. And he's like, no, we probably should. Well, Lee mm-hmm. proceeded to tell the story of a failed hostage rescue where a 19-month-old girl, Susie Pena, was killed. Her father took her hostage, shot one of the police officers. As the SWAT team was making entry, they end up engaging him, and one of the team members ends up hitting Susie. Mm. He left the unit. Lee was the element leader, and he talks Mm -hmm. about it in in the podcast. He left the unit. He said, I just, one of my guys got shot. A 19-month-old is dead on a hostage rescue that I'm leading. I'm not the guy to do this. Mm-hmm. I'm not the right guy. And you could see the weight of it as he talked about it. And you could see the pain that it inflicted on him 20 some odd years later. Right. Yeah. And fortunately he did come back to the unit as a sergeant and now as a Lieutenant, but I, I did, I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for that aspect of it. Like the interview that I just did with the guy from Bataclan, it's so raw. Mm-hmm. And you know, you obviously have to make editorial choices about what we share and, and everybody that is on the debrief sees their episode before it's released. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, we just did the next episode that we're going to run is a, a terrible shooting out of York County, South Carolina, where three police officers are shot and one is killed. Um, and it's a guy named Buddy Brown. And you, you, I mean, one of his closest friends was killed on the operation he was shot in the head and the hip 
and survived, right? Like it's, it's, it's terrible. Mm-hmm. And, and you don't, you don't recognize the cost that these guys pay. Um, stupid things. Like there's a great interview. If you haven't seen it with Ed Hinchy, Ed is, uh, was a police officer who was shot and now runs the body armor program for Safari land. But, uh, Ed tells the story of his six year old going to Sunday school after his shooting. He was in a really bad shooting, was almost killed, ended up killing the suspect and, uh, his daughter going to Sunday school and the nun talking about the 10 commandments and, you know, thou shalt not kill. Mm-hmm. And his daughter innocently raises her hand and goes, well, my daddy had to kill somebody. Well, mm-hmm. your daddy's going to hell. What? And I, I mean, I jokingly in the, in the interview, I said, and that's when Ed punched the nun, but <laughs> oh God, yeah. like that, that's literally what his daughter was told. So it's not yeah. traumatic enough that his daughter has almost seen dad die. And, and, barricaded at his hospital bed for 48 hours mm-hmm. like would not leave was kicking and screaming to the point that the nurses said she can just sleep in your room that's fine but then you know while he's recovering while he's at home unable to walk right this is the way people are treating him he's getting threats his family's getting threats right like all of that stuff is the stuff that you just don't see unfortunately these guys are willing to express and share so we do get a better perspective because I do yeah. think we need a better perspective. Yeah, and even like as you talk about that, I'm reminded of the five Ks, right? The kids of Sid, right? The five Ks, and they talked yep. about how hard it is to night after night hear the peeling out of your father's car out of the oh, driveway, yeah. and then the siren turning on about a block or two later, right? Yeah, because you want to spare that that trauma of your children hearing the siren and immediately associating it with out your dad goes out the door you're not sure if he's going to come back i mean there are many families across the world that every time he or she leaves the front door you don't know if they're coming back military civilian otherwise Um, Sid did four combat tours mm -hmm. vietnam persian gulf somalia and back to the gulf yeah Right, like four combat tours where he was away from his family for extended periods of time and, you know, was was on SWAT, eventually ran SWAT for the Sheriff's Department. Like, almost every time he left, his kids had to wonder. They had to negotiate that in their mind. Yeah, yeah, they had to. And and, and when you talk to the kids, they they felt that. The one beautiful thing that, that, you know, kind of to, to end on Sid, which is just, I think, is such a Sid moment, is... You know, I mean, Sid was exposed to Agent Orange. He had all kinds of health problems. He had all kinds of trauma. He had numerous firefights. And, you know, he's a Marine with three stars on his combat action ribbon, which is, if you understand how the Marine Corps gets combat action ribbons, is everything you need to know. Uh, all of that, Sid died in his sleep next to his wife. That makes me so happy. So I actually was, that's one of the questions I was going to ask yeah. you off off camera, off recording, yeah. because one of, the, one of the things I wrote to myself was, um, you know, the power of seeing you be part of the, the ceremony of life, you know, celebration of life. And, and, you know, you got emotional at the end of that. And the question I wrote down to myself was, how does Sid show up for you today? Every day. Every day. I, uh, like I said, Aardvark is an Aardvark without Sid. John isn't John without Sid. Um, he impacted me at such an early point in my career that it's difficult for me to extract my thinking 
from his teaching mm-hmm. and, and, you know, my, myself from his friendship. Um, and, and it's like, you know, I, I, I recorded the intro to the first episode the day after he died mm-hmm. and I recorded it like 10 or 12 times. Oh, I can imagine you did. And be hard Sid to get had through. seen, he saw both episodes mm-hmm. before Good. he passed and Good. loved him. Good. And, but of course we lose him and the episode is supposed to go live the week after he dies. Mm-hmm. And so I sat down with the kids and said, look, this doesn't have to like, this can just disappear. And tool one, they say, absolutely not. It needs to go. He would want it out there. People need to see it. Uh, so I'm like, I've got to put some kind of a fore end on this thing where like, you know, I've got to put it in context. And so I recorded it and I can't listen to my intro to it now without crying. I, um, so I was, I was going to say, I, I, anybody that's watches it gets choked up the photos. Oh, it's, it's raw. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's raw. But no, I think, I think that, um, you know, retrospectively, the effect that he had on my career and even has on my kids. I mean, my daughter's name Sydney. Really? Yeah. Oh, Spelled with a Y versus an I. And, yeah, and it, it was not, she was not named after Sid. Yeah. But Sid was the inspiration for her name, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember we were sitting around having a conversation, my wife and I are having a conversation, and we're trying to figure out what we're going to name our daughter. And, and Sid called me. And I, I, I would always finish by, okay, Sydney, I'll see you soon. Hung up the phone and she goes, what about Sydney? Yeah. And that's where Sydney came from. So there was like this ongoing joke when Sydney was a baby that, you know, they would, they were both Sids and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, we don't realize how profoundly we impact people and we don't realize that we make waves in people's lives that change everything else about them. And I think that the, the biggest lesson for me from Sid is be a positive change in everybody's life that you know. Mm-hmm. Bring value, share information, care about people, and and at the same time, have balance, mm-hmm. right? Because so many guys that are in his line of work give up their family lives. They, they lose their marriages. They don't have relationships with their kids. Yeah. Um, you know, if you listen to that celebration of life and you hear, you know, his kids telling stories about him, like there was, he, he had it all, mm-hmm. he had it all. And, um, it is, it has been, he was a very positive influence in, as the business started to succeed. And I started to realize, you know, I could trade success for money, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and I could trade happiness for money and relationships for money. And I didn't want to do that. Um, and I think that that's a lot of the message that we want to get across is look at these guys, look at the lives they've led, learn from them, both good and bad. Mm -hmm. But, but we have got to start sharing these stories and we've got to like, uh, you know, you and I talked about trauma previously. Like Mm -hmm. if you have not read Tom Satterley's book, which is called all secure, you you need to read it. Mm -hmm. Everybody needs to read it. Because you need to see, like, you know, it's very easy in the line of work that our clients are, it's very easy to be very macho and and put aside your feelings. You're going to have a hard time convincing me that anybody is more macho than a 25-year Delta operator. Yeah. That is as as hairy-chested manly as it can possibly get, right? Like, that is is alpha male in its ultra form. Here's a guy that absolutely lays himself bare 
and talks about all the trauma and all the damage and all the harm that was caused by that and, and his journey through it and his journey out of it. And I just, I just feel like we need to spend more time listening to each other. Yeah. And I think that platforms like yours and, and hopefully the debrief provide a, a vehicle for us to do that. I know they do. I'm literally a different man to this morning than I was last night. Yeah. And when sure. I think about the last question I wrote, you already answered it. The last question I wrote last night was, how do you bring him home? And I think it's exactly what you're saying, right? You bring him home by remembering the humanity yeah. and remembering the power of vulnerability and talking about trauma in places where we can learn from and grow together. And, you know, he said it himself, like time is notional, right? It's a notional construct. It's a dimension. It exists because we all agree on it. Like it's a mental image. And it brings me such joy to know that he passed peacefully in his sleep next to his wife. I'll make it even better for you. So, um, his wife, Linda, they've been together literally their entire lives. Um, passed in his sleep peacefully, so peacefully that she didn't even know it, sleeping next to him. Which is, you know, all the people that tried to kill Sid, only Sid <laughs> would die in his sleep peacefully. Like that, that was literally an, a, a joke at his, at his service was like, yeah. only Sid could mm -hmm. do it this way. But then the, the funeral home comes and picks him up. The family comes back in. When Sid retired, the, the California Association of Tactical Officers bought him a router to, like he liked doing woodwork. Mm -hmm. you know, he used to joke he had to do shop classes to get out of high school. Um, he he had this, this big six-axis router, and he would, like, do projects. And, you know, he'd ma he made signs for his favorite coffee shop and, you know, mm -hmm. made signs for the kids' houses. And so when when they come in from from placing him, you know, in the funeral home van, he leaves. They come in. They hear the router's going. And they're like, that's weird. He must have started a project last night because the projects would take, you know, two, mm -hmm. three days. They come in. The machine stops literally as the kids walk into the garage. Mm -hmm. I already have goosebumps, man. Whew. It is a rendering of his childhood home. Wow. I mean, the guy, for a guy who wore tan slacks and plaid shirts his entire life, <laughs> he had ridiculous style. Yeah. And timing. <laughs> just like, yeah, I mean, just, my God, man. But it's like we, if you, if you go to the, the website for him, I posted the video mm -hmm. of, of the, that router stopping. And I'm definitely going to go look at that. But it's just, you know, like these, we have so few opportunity to interact with great people and we're so prone to wasting it. Yeah. And then, you know, you, when you get to the end of your life and you look like these guys are, you just realize like in the end, all we have is each other. Yeah. Like, Nothing That's we do literally matters. all we have. Nothing we do matters. You can't take any of this other stuff with you. No, no. So it's yeah. like, you know, it's, I, I think that that's the biggest lesson for me in this whole thing is, is just care about people and, and learn from them and, and interact with them. And it, like, it just makes the world a better place. And I'm, I'm finding it really interesting. You know, I don't necessarily believe in coincidences. And I just find it interesting that literally the last thing I wrote was, how do you bring him home? And then you tell me that story about like yeah, the childhood home. So, is... hey, I'm going to, I'm going to just, I'm going <laughs> to yeah. sit in that for a while. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to end this where we started and, and read this quote again, because I think, again, I don't know if it was given to me, but if you want to get acquainted with a man, get to know his body of work. If you want to understand a man, get to know his mentors. John, thank you so much for this time. And 
popping out of the universe a couple months ago to to say, hey, I think we should talk. <laughs> My pleasure, brother. I appreciate you and I love what you're doing. Thank you. Um, let me know if there's anything I can do to keep supporting you. And I look forward to staying in touch, man. 100%. Thanks. <laughs>